Welcome to Try Talking Sport. Delighted you've tuned into the show. This is episode 19 of the podcast. We are growing steadily in numbers of listeners day by day. I can't believe we're so close to the milestone episode of 20 shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. These past few days, I've been in Tempe, Arizona, attending the Endurance Exchange Conference, a collaboration between the USA Triathlon and Triathlon Business International in the setting of the ASU Sun Devils Stadium. It's been a pretty hectic few days, but also very awesome. Endurance Exchange was packed full of sessions across many aspects of triathlon and endurance racing and brought together some of the biggest brands, coaches, athletes, race directors, media and industry leaders in the sport of triathlon. A great opportunity to learn from, connect and collaborate with some great people. There was lots of fun along the way too with workouts, social gatherings and of course the USAT Hall of Fame banquet where Rick and Dick Hoyt, Cherie Grunfeld and Mike Plant were inducted into the Hall of Fame. There wasn't a dry eye in the room as the introduction to these amazing ambassadors and trailblazers of the sport of triathlon were delivered to the gathered crowd. A truly inspiring evening and a very emotional one. Speaking of inspiring, I had the pleasure of attending Dave McGillivray's session on setting goals, not limits. Dave is the race director of the Boston Marathon and had us riveted to our seats, telling us about his journey in sport as both a runner, triathlete and race director, a career that spans over three decades. Another highlight was hearing professional triathlete Jesse Thomas chart his career in sport and in business in both an entertaining and enlightening way. His picky bar company has gone from strength to strength, but the road wasn't an easy one. Embracing his failures and learning from them, balancing life, sport and business, he has built a multi-million dollar company with his wife, Lauren. We also heard keynotes from Eric Burns, Major League Baseball player turned triathlete, and Pascal Romano, founder of Chargepoint and an Ironman athlete. On Saturday before the conference ended, the Triathlon Business International Women's Mentorship Class of 2020 was announced. Women from all over the world applied to be mentors and mentees to this inaugural programme. And I'm delighted to have been selected as a mentor this year. I've been partnered with professional athlete Laura Siddle as a mentee to explore and develop skills in race commentary and announcing over the next six months, which is very exciting. Laura was a guest on the show in September just before she tamed the dragon at Ironman Wales. So don't forget to go back and check out that show. Now to this week's episode, you're going to hear from three fabulous people who are making waves in the triathlon community. Triathlon Taron is our first guest. I was delighted to chat with him. We had great fun shooting the breeze in the stands of the Sun Devil Stadium as the planes flew overhead. So Taron, along with his wife, is the host of the hugely popular podcast and show Triathlon Taron. The former professional curler is now a strong age group athlete who is chasing a slot for Kona. He is coming to Ireland on June 21st to try and qualify for this year's world championships in Hawaii. We chat about his life and sport and how he has grown to be a name synonymous with triathlon across the globe. Next up, I chat with Sarah Hartman, who is the executive director of the Ironman Foundation. She gives us an insight into the work of the foundation worldwide, some of the projects they are involved with and how you too can get involved in the work of the foundation. As a female leader in the business of triathlon, we also hear how triathlon changed her life on both a personal and professional level. Finally, we chat with athlete and campaigner Trini Willerton, who in May 2018 was seriously injured in a crash with a truck that left her with multiple fractures, a punctured lung and a long road of recovery ahead. 
Trini, however, recovered in time to accept her Women for Try inspirational athlete slot for Kona in 2018 and has since been campaigning and advocating for safer cycling initiatives and stricter penalties for drivers who injure cyclists on the road across the US. All of these guests have turned their passion for triathlon into something greater than themselves, something that we can all look to when things don't always go according to plan. There is always a bigger picture and an opportunity to do more and to be more. If you take anything from this episode, I hope it will be that you will follow your passion, whatever that may be. Follow it and seize every opportunity to embrace it. You never know where it will lead you. from Canada. What a pleasure it is to finally meet you and a big shout out to Mike Riley who introduced us about 15 minutes ago and now we're sitting in the beautiful uh, Sun Devil Stadium, the impressive Sun Devil Stadium here in Tempe, Arizona, having a chat in the sunshine. Yeah, this is, well, I mean, we can, I guess, commiserate over our similar fair skin. You're from Ireland, I'm from Canada. I haven't seen sun in about four months. This is nice. However, all the sunscreen. No, I don't have any sunscreen on today because I didn't expect to see the sunshine. We're here this weekend for the Endurance Exchange and I do listen to uh, some of your podcasts and the one I listened to um, that led me to asking Mike to introduce us was the one with Mike Riley where you told me, well you told the world, you were going to race at Ironman Ireland in Cork in Mm -hmm. June 21st. Yeah, uh, (laughs) now the pressure is on. I didn't know if I really wanted Mike to be the one to announce me, hopefully across the line, it's a heck of a hard race. So uh, I've always said that people should try to take on goals in athletics or life or whatever it is that are like a little bit scary. Cork is like that. Seeing the conditions last year, I'm scared. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope we don't get a day like we got in 2019. I mean, I don't think we should. It was probably the worst summer's day we've ever had in the history of Ireland. Um, but the course itself is absolutely incredible. And the people were amazing. The community mm. in Cork, I don't think you'll have ever seen anything like the crowds that will be out, especially on Windmill Hill and really? in around the, the town centre. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Did you watch the footage from... I, I saw some clips and the one that I saw was uh, a woman going up a hill. I can't remember what the name of the hill was, Windmill but hill. Windmill Hill, the brutal hill. And she was crying and drove into the crowd saying that she didn't want to finish. So this is the impression that I have of Cork. Um, hopefully I'm a little bit more towards the Alistair Brownlee side of the race, just kind of prancing away on my toes. Uh, maybe a little bit slower than him, but it's uh, it's going to be interesting. It's, it'll actually be my first time in Ireland, and with a little bit of Irish blood in me, I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, so your grandmother was a Nesbitt, is that correct? Grandmother was a Nesbitt, yes. Yeah, so is that a quarter Irish, maybe? I think it's a quarter. We never really got a straight answer from my grandpa, my Irish grandma's husband. Uh, he claimed that he wasn't Irish, but we looked into some genealogy and I think he's got some in there. So maybe, like if anything, a little bit more than a quarter, like five sixteenths. We just need to find out what part of Ireland they're in so you can go visit your ancestral home uh, in Ireland when you're over. Because I know Mike is, is planning to visit a few locations. Michael Joseph Patrick Riley, Michael as we Joseph. christened him um, at the race. But he, he actually does 
His name is Michael Joseph Patrick uh, yeah, Riley. That's what he said in the podcast that we did. How you give him shit all the time about <laughs> Michael Joseph Patrick Riley. <laughs> I was more like, Mike, will you just go and change your clothes, please? We're absolutely soaking wet. Please change your clothes um, so you don't get pneumonia. But Cork is a fantastic race. I mean, it has to be said, I don't want to. I don't want anybody to think that Cork isn't amazing. I'm, I'm from Cork originally. And Windmill Hill, yes, it is tough, but I know that this year there's uh, the king of the hill and the queen of the hill uh, for Windmill Hill. It's being, uh, yes, the fastest athletes fastest athletes up the hill win prizes from Stella Italia and Santini Ooh. so would you consider trying to be the fastest man up the hill probably not I climb like a bulldog <laughs> That's, I, I am much better going fast in a straight line than I am climbing Okay, so there's a few straight lines in Cork. Um, You know, there's not many. Uh, Maybe the run course, but it is looped, so you will have plenty of time to run around um, the town centre of Yall. And of course, the swim has moved to a different location for 2020, which is really great as well. Let's talk a bit more about your, I suppose, career in triathlon and your journey in triathlon, because you weren't always fit and you weren't always very sporty, especially in the sport of triathlon. No, so in my mid-twenties, I, uh, I was sporty, I'll use air quotes, sporty. I was a, a professional curler, and curlers aren't really known for being very fit. And I was that typical curler. I was about 215 pounds. I wasn't really happy. I just kind of grew up with a family that didn't really appreciate fitness, didn't know how to eat healthy and drank a lot because that's what curlers do and ate a lot of bad food because that's what curlers do and at the time i was an investment advisor and just all of it it was like all these things of like being in finance and a job that i wasn't happy in and a body that i wasn't happy in i wasn't very fulfilled and i thought like is this what being an adult's like and just on a bit of a chance i ended up getting into triathlon and uh, just fell in love with it because uh, there are very few times in real life, day to day, where you're challenged and where you're not sure if you're going to be able to actually do something, if you're not going to be able to actually complete the race and, and it's going to be physically hard. And I compare it to like when you're a kid and whatever sport you were and you had butterflies. You never get that as an adult anymore. But in triathlon, you do. And I just fell in love with that. So when you came into the sport of triathlon, were you able to swim, cycle or run or had you done any of that as a child? And sorry, that noise is uh, an airplane just crossing over. Uh, We're in the flight path here for Phoenix, Arizona's airport. And there's two airplanes actually uh, going right over the the stadium, which is quite a sight with the blue skies. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And just in case you can hear the noise in the background as well, there is a guy um, actually power washing the seats. It's very annoying, but I'm hoping that the noise won't be too bad. but just in case uh, you're wondering what the noise in the background is, uh, it is a bit of uh, airplanes and <laughs> Taryn humming. Can't stop Taryn from humming. I know it's really weird. What a weird, uh, what a weird uh, twitch. That's it. Um, but to come back to sports, so when you took up triathlon, could you swim, cycle, or run? Definitely not. Basically, as a, I was the typical triathlete age grouper that got into it. I had gone through don't drown level one and don't drown level two as a kid, but never actually swam laps. So the first time I went to the pool, I went for an hour and I thought that I was going to just rip that pool apart because here I am, big, tough, 20 something. And I swam 14 lengths of the pool, not laps, not there and back, but 14 there, one, back, two. 
in an hour. So 350 yards in an hour. And then I went on a bike thinking the same thing. And I thought that I biked further than anyone had ever biked before. I went 13 kilometers and could not walk for days. So I, I, just, I was awful at every last bit of it. But just worked at it, and I've been in it in the sport now 10 years, and none of it has ever come easy to me. I've never been like a natural athlete. Like, I, I'm not like my brother, for example, where if you give him a ball, he can dunk a basketball left-handed with a broken collarbone on the right side. Like, I've actually seen him do it first try, and I can't do that. So I've had to work at it since day one just like most age groupers because a lot of us don't have any sort of background in swim bike or run do you think that's what makes the sport of triathlon so special is the fact that it doesn't come easy to the majority of us and even the professional athletes they're gonna not be good at one aspect of their their race of their swim bike or run every athlete has a favorite every athlete has the bit that they don't like so is it this fulfilling piece that you know, you mentioned the challenge bit where you don't know whether you're going to finish the race, but also the fact that you have to work at it. So it's like a, a goal or a motivation thing for you to do. I think for the right person, yeah, I totally agree that the people that are attracted to triathlon are attracted by a challenge. And there's always a challenge in triathlon, unless you're Jan Ferdino, where you can swim at the front, bike at the front, run at the front. Even Patrick Lange, he talks about having to work on his bike. And last year he worked on his swim. Everyone has something that we can improve upon. And I think that's addictive to have that little bit of, of improvement and progress that you see, oh, I got a little bit better. I got a little bit faster. I got a little bit better at my technique, things like that. Because there's always something to work on. I think you're always seeing progress. Whereas, like I said, in day-to-day in -day life, a lot of people don't have that. You might feel like you're moving papers like I did from the left side of the desk to the right side of the desk and then back from the right to the left and you never really feel like you're getting anywhere. But in triathlon, as long as you're working at it, you are always getting somewhere and you get a lot of fulfillment from that. And there's also the piece as well that triathlon is such an individual sport as well. It's not like a team sport where other people are relying on you to turn up to training. The only person that's relying on you to turn up to training is yourself. And the only way you'll get better is by turning up yourself. Now, whether you train with a squad or not is completely up to yourself. But I think there's definitely a sense of personal achievement. Sometimes getting out of bed, I know for myself, getting out of bed on time to get to my squad training is like the biggest achievement of the day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben Hoffman, pro triathlete, we were just uh, in Tucson recently and talking to him and he said, the hardest part is just starting. And this guy's a guy that has finished second in Kona, fourth in Kona, won multiple Ironmans and he said like, his whole goal is to minimize the cost of starting, like that mental difficulty of getting started and then once he does, he can go and do the workout and he feels good about it and then feels good after but that getting started even for a pro he talks about how hard it is so where did you start how did you actually start your triathlon journey <laughs> um well i had been working out in the gym a little bit lost a little bit of weight never really stayed off it was kind of like big bulky weightlifter kind of weight that came off and and I thought that I was going to be a bodybuilder and uh, lift a whole bunch of heavy weight one day and I tore my shoulder. 
So I couldn't really do anything. I couldn't lift my arm over the, the height of my shoulder. So I started walking on a treadmill just to still do something in the gym. And then I went, oh, this is really boring, just walking on a treadmill. So then I alternated one day walking on the treadmill, one day on a stationary bike. And then I went, oh, wow, this is kind of boring too after a few days. And then I looked and there was a pool off to the side. So I just started intermittently going swim, bike, run, run, bike, swim. I had no idea what I was doing. And after a few months, I went, you know, there was a friend that I went to university with who was a really good triathlete, I think. At least he was skinny and probably knows more about triathlon. Let me see what he, what he can do. Well, it turns out he was like one of the top 100 triathletes in the world in ITU as a junior. And I said, how do you do triathlon? He said, well, you enter and you do it. And that's how you do a triathlon. It's like, well, no, it's got to be way more complicated. Like I need lists of this and that. He's like, whatever, just like buy whatever bike you, you need, get a pair of shoes, you'll figure it out. And yeah, that's 10, 11 years later. I never really went at it with this huge plan of trying to be elite or anything like that. I just wanted to feel like a bit of a badass. And I started a try a try, which was a 300 meter swim, a 13 kilometer bike and a 3K run. I like how I can be on an Irish podcast and talk in kilometers. Oh, yeah. I can't I can't do that on most of our US guest podcasts because well, they wouldn't understand us. Oh, they get all crusty at me you know, like just do some math geez um, so that was the the first race that I did and I finished second overall but out of seven <laughs> and uh, of those seven I think four were under the age of 13 um so it really didn't show that i had any talent but that was it that was the very first race that i did and it was that feeling at the start line of oh my god i might die <laughs> in this 40 minute race i might die that was it so where did you go from there then what what was the what was the next race you did or how did you end up stepping up to the big longer distance resulting in you being quite a good age grouper for a few years, I really struggled. I didn't really have any sort of plan or idea how to train, how to race, what nutrition to do. I just thought that if I swam a bunch and biked a bunch and ran a bunch, that I'd be able to do a triathlon. So I tried sprints, I tried Olympics, I tried kind of funny distances. And for two years, every race I went into was a disaster. I wasn't getting any faster, I wasn't getting any better. Then a, a switch flipped about taking triathlon seriously and I started trying to learn a lot about it. So researching it, trying to understand how to actually design a training program. What does a training program mean? And it would have been about eight years ago, right before my third season, that I started training not necessarily a ton more, but just with a lot more intention and structure to workouts and realizing that every workout needs to have a purpose. Some need to improve your endurance, some need to improve your speed, some need to work on your leg strength, things like that. And just starting every workout with a purpose, that allowed me to take a big step. And I focused on sprints because I knew I could control a shorter sprint. So I went from doing something like a 127 or 128 sprint distance race one year to a 112 and then a 111 and then a 110 and then a 107 within about 18 months after that 
And after that, I just started building up every few years when I felt like I had control over a distance, more con- say more control over the sprint race than the sprint race had over me, then I'd step up to Olympic. And then I'd step up once I felt like I had more control over the Olympic distance than it had over me. And it's just gone, it's taken me the, yeah, eight years to feel like I have a bit of a control over half Ironman and probably don't have a big control over Ironman because I don't think anyone really ever does. But I'm now at the point that I feel like I can be competitive at that Ironman and maybe get to Kona. So where did you do your very first Ironman distance race? I did Challenge Roth last year. So it took me nine years to decide to do my first Ironman distance race. And that was Challenge Roth 2019. So I did Challenge Roth 2013. Yeah, that's my one and only, yeah, it's my one and only long distance race. I'm not an Ironman though, because I did a challenge race. So I'm, I know, but I'm not an Ironman yet is what I'll put there. Uh, Yet. But yeah, Roth was, uh, was incredible. It was 35 degrees in heat in the run course and the bike was fabulous. But I have to say it was, uh, it was, yeah, triathlon's been a life changing journey, really. Um, so have you done any other Iron Distance race since or will Cork potentially be your second? Cork is going to be the next one. Okay. Yeah, I've only done that one Ironman distance race. Done a couple um, like longer ultra endurance adventures, I'd call them, a couple marathon swims. But uh, it's just strictly been that one Iron Distance event as far as the long stuff. So you're also a plant-based, uh, you live off a plant-based diet, isn't that correct? Uh, no, no, I would actually say that there was a time, it was about three years, uh, and that three years ended about a year ago, that I would never say that I would be vegan. I would say that like 98% of the meals that I had were plant-based or vegan, but if somebody wanted to go out for wings I would have that Uh, I was never a full believer that 100% plant-based was better than 80% or 90% and what I found was there's some science to this that you go through a bit of a plant-based honeymoon and after a few years it can catch up to you and that's what I was finding about a year ago it was catching up to me and I was just feeling really dumpy feeling like my um sort of my muscles were not strong, not degrading. I was achy a lot. So I've gone away from that. We still eat a lot of plants, like tons and tons of plants, but I don't limit the meat anymore. I'm going to go on into a very controversial subject here, but I believe that the say meat eating community who are very healthy meat eaters and plant-based community aren't actually that far apart. I think healthy meat eating and say low carb, high fat, healthy meat eating should still be like 70 to 80% of the volume of your food should be plants, but you also get to have meat. So that's my belief and um, there's some science for it, but there's equal amount of science to plant-based. So it's not really a hill that I die on one way or another. So would you have blue cheese or ranch sauce on your chicken wings? Oh, ranch. Oh, Oh, blue blue. cheese. Oh, no. Blue cheese is... Ask my wife about blue cheese. Yeah, so... It's it's like... You know how grapefruit gets into like a fruit salad and infects all the fruit salad? That's what blue cheese is like. I had blue cheese on my burger in Rula Bula last night. It was lovely. Well, that would actually... That actually sounds okay. But like a blue cheese salad? 
Yum. Uh, you mentioned your wife, uh, Kim. No, no triathlon Kim with triathlon Taryn. So um, tell me a little bit about Kim and how you guys ended up uh, hosting your own podcast and working together uh, to host the show. Well, Kim is the real talent. Kim is a reporter of 18 years. She was the social media person in the family. She was running the social media and a lot of the marketing for our local professional football club. Um, North American football. I was looking at that like, ah, social media is just about cat videos. Like, it has no business. Like, what are you talking about? And I was just seeing what she was doing and, and she never ever tried to get me to understand social media or videos or reporting. I just saw what she was doing and was like, ah, that looks kind of creative, kind of fun. And she's the talent of the podcast. Uh, fun story, Mike Riley was actually our very first guest. And I am just pooping my pants, scared. Like, what? Uh, it's Mike Riley. He's a legend in the sport. Uh, we got to prepare. We got to storyboard this podcast. I prepared for days. And the day before, I said, we got we to gotta plan this out, Kim. And she goes, what do you mean? We turn on the microphones and we talk to him. Like, no, 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 we gotta plan this out. Well, she sits down on the day of, and I'm freaking out, I've got the headset, I'm double, triple checking all the levels, all the mics, I'm crank calling myself to make sure Skype is working. And she comes in two minutes before we're scheduled to start, grabs some knitting and is like, oh, hi, Mike, how's it going? And she asks all the tough questions. A couple days later, we're talking to Mark Allen. She's knitting. She asks a question that just breaks him. And he goes from like, all of his normal responses that he said for 20 years to like, that is a fantastic question. And she's knitting. She's the hero of it, of the podcast. She edits the podcast. She puts them up. I just make sure that I hit record and don't curse too much. <laughs> and aside from Mike Riley and Mark Allen, who have been your most exciting guests or the guests that would give you butterflies in your belly that would need all the research before you talk to them? Lucy Charles. Oh, yeah. She did it. Which is funny because she was apparently, before we did the podcast, her and her husband, Reese, they watched the show. So they were kind of the same, apparently, that they were like, oh, Taryn wants to do a podcast? Oh, my goodness. Meanwhile, I'm sitting across from Lucy like, how did I get Lucy Charles on the podcast? And there was a moment where she finished answering a question. And I was just sitting there like wondering, how did I get Lucy on the podcast? My goodness. And there was like this awkward two second pause where I'm like, oh, uh, question. <laughs> I was just in awe. And uh, yeah, now she's kicked my ass up and down a bunch of hills in Lanzarote and on runs and things like that. Now she's just the mean training partner. <laughs> in terms of female athletes, aside from Lucy Charles, who is your favorite? I have a real place in my heart for Sarah True. Yeah, yeah, the journey that she's been on has been fantastic. And she's just one of the nicest people in triathlon. Like, she was one of the first pros to ever really pay attention to us and come on our podcast. She didn't know who we were. She just wanted to give back to the sport and said yes to coming on the podcast. And then said yes to being in our YouTube videos. And then said yes to being on an online course that we produced with her. And it's just always really giving of her time and like her and Ben are just some of the most down to earth people imaginable. We actually just, like I said, um, I was telling you that we came from Tucson. We stayed in there, the place that they stayed in last year. 
So I've got a real special place in my heart for Sarah. Yeah, I got to meet her uh, properly at the Outspoken Summit in November. She's a true gem. She's a really lovely oh, yeah. lady. Yeah, she's one of the best in the sport. Yeah. Uh, looking at the men, maybe, um, what do you think for 2020 for um, your pick of, of winners in Kona for 2020? I have thought for a while that Jan Ferdino will not enter a race that he does not think he can win. And as long as the race goes according to his plan, he will win. I think he's probably one of the best long-distance triathletes ever. He's just so well-rounded. He's got the swim. He's got the bike. He's got the run. He's got the nutrition. Like Just every last bit of it, he's made for Kona. His sweat rate, his build, everything is really good for him. And until there's a chink in the armor with Jan, I think kind of be lying to yourself if you said anyone else could dethrone him. I think the Olympics are going to be very exciting as well for, for 2020, especially with um, Alistair Brownlee after qualifying for Kona now and trying to get to uh, Tokyo 2020. It's going to be a very interesting year for the sport of triathlon in general, aside from the whole PTO and Collins Cup announcement, which happened this week as well, which we've just heard all about from Sam and Rachel and others uh, on the stage here at Endurance Exchange. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on right now. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I like that our, uh, our livelihood as media people does not rely on um, one thing or the other, and it relies on all of these big announcements that are happening because there's a lot of things that have been tried over the years, and I, I think back to curling, that there were some events that were the million-dollar tournament, curling tournament. They're called a bond spiel, so the million-dollar bond spiel. And it was supposed to change the world of curling as we knew it, and it did nothing. Um, didn't even end up happening. Now, I'm not saying that PTO is not going to work. I think that PTO has much, much better quality people and the right people that if they are going to make it work, they've got the right people involved, 100%. But I, I'm going to do a podcast with them tomorrow. And I'm really like, I almost feel like I need to be like the bad cop to the good cop of the world, and, like kind of dig in, like, what is the business model? I still don't really get how it's going to be around for a bunch of years. And um, I really don't want to poo poo what I think is a very good thing. I'm just, I want to know more about it at the moment. And as far as the Olympics go, that's going to be a blast because we don't have a top dog that is a clear, this is your podium favorite like we had for the last few Olympics. It's going to be a lot of fun this year. I think it's going to be very, it looks like it's going to be very open across the men's and the women's race. Um, you know, and for the first time, as you say, in a number of years, we don't really have an athlete that could be miles ahead of, yeah. of somebody else. If you think of like 2012 and 2016, it was always potentially in the men's race going to be a Brownlee brother. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like it was, it was almost, it was just a given that it was going to be Alistair and Johnny Maybe Javier would scare him a little bit, but it was probably going to be Alistair and Johnny, no matter what. And that's what we got. I think this year, it's a lot more open. You've seen a lot of guys step up. Gustav Eden, Christian Blumenfeld, Mario Mola. You know, did he peak a couple years too early? Um, same could be said for Richard Murray. Uh, like, all kinds of athletes. Uh, the women's, I think, it, we've seen... Katie Zafiris be really consistent but not really establish herself as the number one competitor week in, week out. So 
it's super fun to watch. If there's betting odds, like I don't know who I'd bet on. <laughs> I don't I don't know who you'd bet on really because it's so I think it's so wide open. Coming back though to you specifically and Kona because that's what really is on the cards for you this year. You want to come to Ireland to qualify for Kona for 2020? I want to try. Yeah, we're going to try. I think that Kona is always what it's what brings a lot of people into the sport. It's what brought me into the sport. It's what got me thinking about it. That NBC broadcast that is emotional and inspiring all at the same time. It's what made me think about trying to do it. And it scares me to say that I want to try to qualify for Kona because there's a few hundred thousand people around the world that are probably going to see me fail at getting there. Because I'm not really super naturally talented. I've got to work really hard at it. And based on my challenge Roth race, i got to get probably 20 to 30 minutes faster. And that's a tall order for somebody who's not very naturally good at swimming, biking, or running. So it scares me a little bit to say it really publicly that that's what I'm trying to do now. But that fear is also what excites me and motivates me and gets me out the door to this morning do a 90 minute bike in five degrees celsius weather before coming to this event because that's another check mark on a good training day yeah i want to try to get to kona do i think it's going to happen at cork um i don't know ask me like the week before <laughs> i don't know um i've only done one long distance race so i don't really know if i've got the stuff to get as fast as I need to. But do you not think that by putting it out there and saying that you want to try qualify in Cork is as good as manifesting to the universe <laughs> that you kind of want to do it, but also that you're visualizing, um, you know, maybe running down that finish line. I'm sure you've watched the, the footage and the promo videos that they have that you can visualize yourself cycling up Windmill Hill, running through the town and coming down that finish line. And that does that ever form part of your preparation? Because I know for a lot of athletes, visualization is hugely important for them in terms of their success on race day. Personally, not really. I, I believe that there's a lot of merit to the visualizing and, and that it does work. In my case, it stresses the hell out of me. When I end up having something that's really big and I've, I've put up on a pedestal, it psychs me out. So I end up getting nervous. And I tend to not be like a five-year goal, a three-year goal, a 10-year goal, like future planning kind of guy anymore. I did that after getting out of university and thought I was going to be a corner office fancy suit and tie banker and quickly learned that that isn't actually what I wanted. And when that is what I'd gone to school for and thought my life was going to be for seven years, basically, and then it kind of unraveled, that really shattered me. I felt aimless. So now I just, I try to focus on like, what's a cool thing that I can do this month that maybe is a cool project to do over the next three months? Uh, finishing Roth and saying, well, you know, I did a 941 there. Could I potentially qualify for Kona? Sure. And what do I have to do for that? I gotta have a good coach. I gotta work really hard and I gotta work really hard like now. So I actually don't really do a whole lot of visualizing about it because it psychs me out. 
Okay, and you mentioned your coach. So you obviously have a coach, but you're also a coach as well. Um, and you've got your own coaching platform where you have a lot of people get their triathlon Taran training tips and their motivation and their goal setting from you. Um, so talk me through how that all came about and uh, how people can join up with the triathlon Taran coaching group if they want to do it. When we started doing the YouTube videos and growing, I, I don't know, it would have been probably around when we had around 10,000 subscribers or so. So this would have been, I think, two or three, three years ago, I want to say. We were starting to get a lot of questions from people saying, how can I apply these lessons? How can I get coaching from you? And essentially, I was acting as their pseudo coach, just giving them tips here, there and everywhere. And I realized that I was never really giving them the exactly how to do it. Like there's no structure. It was just an idea and another idea and another idea and then a tip on how to change your bike tires faster and then, oh, what shoes should you select? And there was no system. So I thought, well, essentially I'm kind of being a coach to them. Should I just be a coach? And as I explained to you, I thought about how much work would I have to do with an athlete to give what I felt would be a really good level of service. And I thought, holy smokes, this would be like seven or $900 a month worth of work just for what I believed would be good coaching. And I went, oh, I don't think that's right because I'm appealing to the, the beginners, the people that are in their first zero to four years or so and to tell them that they've got to spend $700 a month on coaching, not gonna happen. What we did instead was I looked at, all right, what can we automate that are coaching decisions that are standards? Like, well, we have a certain build in our long run and we need to keep the heart rate low. And I don't need to manually upload that to Training Peaks every single day. So we built a website that's called teamtrainiac.com. It's a web app. So it's an app on the web right now. We're working on an iOS and uh, Android app right now and basically people come and they say I want to do a se let's say they want to do a 70.3 they'll say that they want to do a 70.3 they'll pick the discipline that they feel they need the most work on so whether they want to work on the swim the bike the run more and how many times a week they want to work out and it gives them their full training every single day that they've said they want to do a workout all year round and tapers them for their races lets them rest after their races, gets them trained up. And then we've got video and audio files that explain each workout. So all told, we've got a database of about, I wanna say it's grown to around 7,000 workouts that with all these algorithms and it just customizes a plan for them. It's 57 bucks a month and allows us to help instead of say 10 or 12 people, I think we've grown to in between about four and 500. Wow, so it really is a mass participation app appealing to the mass participation athlete. Exactly, yeah. We look at ourselves as we're trying to help those people in their first zero to four years get comfortable in the sport. Can they qualify for world championships with us? Yes, we had, I know of two, 100%. Uh, there's probably a few others out there last year that qualified for worlds that we didn't hear about, but I got to witness two actually qualify for their very first ever world championships. One of those two athletes said, well, I want to compete. I want to maybe get on the podium at Taupo 70.3 next year. Can I do it on this app? 
And for that, I said, you know what, you're probably best off with a one-on-one coach, getting into a lab, a physiologist, somebody that's going to work on you. And that's fine. I'm fine with them going off to another coach. But if we've helped them basically get to a, a start line feeling really confident and across a finish line just feeling like a bit of a badass and the experience has been enjoyable and they've never had to question like, have they done enough? Have they not done enough? Like, when should I run easy? When should I run hills? When should I bike long? Do I have to train 15 hours a week? Simplifying all that and just letting people just worry about showing up every day and being daring enough to show up every day and daring enough to enter a race and that's all they have to worry about and the training is taken care of for them, I'm really happy. And leave leave all the really high performance stuff to guys like my coach and, and the people that, that we've hired to be consultants for our platform to make sure that we're doing a good job with them. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where I think we, we try to fit in. If you could race any race in the world, the exception of Kona, because we know you want to get there, where would it be? Need a second to think about that. Montreal Blanc comes to mind. I do like the shorter races. Shorter races are a lot of fun. Except they're really, really hard. That's partly why. I did challenge Daytona at the end of last year and just did the sprint race. Total blast an immense amount of pain while I was going through it for that hour and five minutes. But the second I crossed the finish line, pain was done. (laughs) It wasn't like an Ironman where you're walking funny for three weeks. It was like, I walked across the finish line. I was like, I can do that again. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You're not walking backwards up, uh, up the stairs or can't stand up from a seat or can't (laughs) even sit down to the seat. Um, I suppose I'm going to come towards the end of the the conversation now, but um, in terms of how your life has changed from taking up the sport of triathlon, it's gone from zero to hero. Really, you've gone from your financial world to follow your passion for sport and passion for triathlon. Yeah, I am trying to do a good job of proving my mother wrong and being able to play for a living. I think we're both doing that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like it's surreal. When I first uploaded my very first, say, half a dozen YouTube videos, a friend said to me, you know, that's really cool that you're doing that. You could become YouTube famous. And I went, you know, with all due respect, Crystal, that's never going to happen. Uh there's a long way to go. Nobody wants to listen to some chubby, blonde, pale kid from Winnipeg talk about triathlon. Why would anyone listen to me? That doesn't make any sense. I don't really know what it is, like why people follow. We just kept pressing publish on podcasts and videos for long enough that I guess something worked. Like I was always just having so much fun learning how to edit videos and learning how to interview people learning what makes a good interview, getting to talk to people that I never really went at this with this grand vision of being able to make a living in triathlon. I was just having a lot of fun making the content and we're lucky enough that people paid attention. It still kind of baffles me. I think maybe that the the passion for what you do comes through really and you're quite easy to talk to because if anybody knew that we met uh, about 10 minutes before (laughs) this interview, we've no notes, we've nothing. Um, You know, I don't think people would realize, you know, that it's it's, it's just like having a chat with two people. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. And I'll probably have a... (laughs) 
I'll probably have just a mark on my left arm because my right arm is <laughs> holding the, um, the recorder. But I just want to say thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And a huge thanks to Mike Riley for introducing us. We have missed a session here today, but I think it was worth it. I think the listeners will enjoy um, tuning into this episode. And of course, we'll tell them to tune into uh, Trathlon Taran's podcast and YouTube videos as well. And I can't wait to see you on the start line of Ironman Cork on the 21st of June. Thank you very much for having me. I guarantee that I will be afraid at the start line of Ironman Cork. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll have me, Mike Riley and Jay Luke on the start line to mind you and all of the other athletes that will be there on race day. So no problem to you. We'll see you there. Thank you so much. So we're into the last uh, couple of hours of Endurance Exchange and I managed to just grab Sarah Hartman, who is the Executive Director of the Ironman Foundation, for a quick chat. This is one of the busiest females in the business of triathlon, uh, making an impact not only here in the United States, but helping to better the lives of people across the world through the work of the Ironman Foundation. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Joanne. It's great. Um, it's your fault I'm here. You and Mike Riley. <laughs> FOMO for sure. We, we wanted to make sure you were here for all this fun. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was lots of fun. Tell me a little bit about uh, the Ironman Foundation and how you became involved with the organization that is Ironman. Well, I've been here for three years now. Um, I was named executive director last year. Um, the Ironman Foundation is the charitable arm of the Ironman group and our family of races around the world. I think you probably know 235 and counting races, right? And 58 countries across six continents. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. The mission of the foundation is to create positive, tangible impact in all the communities where our race events are held by awarding grant funding and supporting volunteer efforts. And uh, that takes on a variety of, of uh, programs and facets. And I'll, I'll give you just like a quickie overview. Uh, we'll give about $2 million this year in grant funding to about 1,500 local nonprofit organizations in the communities where our races are held. So the idea is that uh, we don't just come into town and shut down the roads for the weekend during the race, but we're supporting local nonprofits and charities that are doing good work all year round. So we're leaving a positive, lasting legacy behind in the community. We offer about 27 service project opportunities per year where our athletes, um, partners, staff, family, friends can come and have a real tangible hands-on experience as part of the race week and give back to that community. And I've always said that um, it feels great to donate. There's, a, there's psychology around that, you know, but when you are donating or fundraising and then you get to meet the person whose life you're changing through your volunteerism or your, gener your generosity, it's a life-changing moment, you know, to go to Puerto Rico and race Ironman 70.3 Puerto Rico and, and stay the next day to help rebuild homes and to meet Maria and Jose and the others that, you know, we've worked with over the years. It's it's incredible. And in South Africa, you know, meeting the kids who are at the, the brand new daycare center that we built um, back in 2018 at the Ironman 70.3 World Championship, um, headed to Oceanside later this year. Um, that's a big race for Ironman. It's really the kickoff of the Ironman season in North America. 
And it'll be the fourth year that we're partnering with the Challenge Athletes Foundation for an adaptive surf clinic the morning after the race. So we come out and kids, women, men, military veterans who have physical challenges, adaptive limbs, etc., they learn how to surf. And it's an incredible moment. It's uh, truly an anything is possible type moment. Um, those are just a few of the, the service project opportunities, which I think have become a real hallmark of the work that we're doing. Um, and a big part of, of what we do as well is disaster relief. Um, we launch humanitarian relief effort campaigns in our communities where disasters, natural disasters happen. And last year it was over half a million dollars. Uh, much of that raised for Hurricane Michael recovery and uh, the Florida Panhandle. Um, and of course, we've just recently, sadly, launched the humanitarian relief effort campaign for Australian bushfire recovery. It's something that you seem very, very passionate about. That it's not just a job for you, Sarah. You could see in you the passion and drive you have to make sure that um, every I is dotted and every T is crossed in terms of delivering on what the Ironman Foundation is about. So how did you get here? <laughs> Uh, a disaster, actually, uh, I think is probably the best way to answer the question. I had a career in technology for a long time, was a senior VP of a, a software company and um, made the move from Los Angeles back to New York and fell in with a group of triathletes. And that's uh, always dangerous. I know, I know. And, you know, at nighttime, everybody would, you know, we'd get together. How far did you ride today? What were your watts? And, you know, what, what's your long run this weekend? And I had no idea what anybody was talking about. So finally, I just decided, you know, I better try. And I did my first sprint triathlon. And I, I clearly remember crossing the finish line and saying, uh, my life has just changed and knew that I wanted to be in sport, knew I wanted to be in the sport of triathlon. I always say that uh, race morning for me is like Christmas morning. You know, it's full of wonder and surprise and electricity and you don't know how the day is going to turn out, but you know you're going to be different when you cross that finish line. And so I set about getting certified as a USAT race director and um, had many mentors who were amazing and so generous to me in training me inside the endurance sports industry, many of whom I met at the TBI Triathlon Business International Conference. I'm going to say it was 2013 maybe. And uh, it's so amazing that we're here now today at Endurance Exchange, which you know is this conjoined conference uh, with TBI and USAT. Um, I was training for my second New York City Marathon in 2012 when it was canceled due to Hurricane Sandy. And uh, very quickly, myself and a bunch of my triathlete friends from the Brooklyn Tri Club joined forces and started coordinating relief efforts around the New York metro area. And it was a crazy time. And we would, you know, I'd get phone calls from the mayor's office and he'd say, you know, Sarah, can you get 50 runners down to Coney Island? They have these high rises there and that's where all the senior citizens live. There's no power and we need runners to go up and down the stairs with water, knocking on doors, making sure they have their medications, you know, are they okay? And we're in a direct flight path at Phoenix <laughs> Airport. So this is one of the many airplanes that will fly over the conversation in the next uh, 15 minutes. <laughs> so from New York, then what happened after that? So we coordinated relief efforts uh, after Hurricane Sandy for about six weeks, then regrouped and formed a nonprofit organization called Race to Rebuild, where athletes will race in communities damaged by natural disasters and then help rebuild um, and work on recovery projects as part of their race week. And we did that for uh, 
maybe three years or so, expanded out of the Hurricane Sandy area and, you know, to New Orleans and Detroit and uh, Texas and South Carolina. And in Texas, we received a grant from the Ironman Foundation uh, to do some flood rebuilding there. And then uh, later that year, we also received some grant funding to go to Ecuador. Ironman uh, has a race in Manta, and they'd had um, some really bad earthquakes in 2016. So we worked with the Ironman Foundation and um, an international disaster rebuilding nonprofit, um, all hands, all hearts, volunteers, to build a community center and a relocation village. And it was around that time that an opportunity was made available at, at the Ironman Foundation and Race to Rebuild, the program that I helped uh, found, is now at home at a 40-year-old nonprofit called Rebuilding Together. The national office is in Washington, D.C., but they have 140 affiliates around the country, and they're still racing and rebuilding and using that program to fundraise uh, and help bring people home. So when, um, when the Ironman Foundation comes into, say, Puerto Rico, which you're going back to uh, this year, it, they work with the local communities as well. It's not just the athletes that can get involved. It's the local communities that can, and the local volunteer groups that come in and support the work of the Ironman Foundation to do some of that rebuilding. That's absolutely true. And, and every project that we do is always in conjunction with locally-led nonprofits. And so uh, they're really the boots on the ground who are receiving grant funding from us and, you know, helping to host these service projects. But we've become, especially in Puerto Rico, really close to a lot of the, you know, the local residents. And um, I'm thinking back on, on last year's project in a community center that we helped to uh, to build. And afterwards, there was um, this community gathering where everybody from the community who would use that community center came for a big dinner and there was music and dancing and it was really special. But the Armour Foundation isn't just about the humanitarian aid side of things because um, you obviously have the Women for Try program, um, which is a phenomenal uh, program that you're delivering, which was local to the States for many years and now it's gone global. Um, so talk a little bit maybe about that and how people can get involved in the Women for Try program and, and what it's about. So Women for Try is a program that was started by Ironman in 2015 to increase female participation in the sport. Um, it functions as a program of the Ironman Foundation because we're giving grant funding to tri clubs around the world. Now over 90 clubs have received funding from us to create programming that breaks barriers to bring more women into the sport. Our online Facebook group called Women for Try has now over 58,000 women from around the world. It's just one of the most incredible things. It operates 24 hours hours a day, women celebrating each other and, and helping them on their triathlon journeys and rediscovering their potential in life as triathletes. Back in 2017, uh, when the Ironman 70.3 World Championship was split into a two-day format, um, women racing on Saturday and men racing on Sunday, there, uh, there were more female entries available. And so Andrew Messick, our CEO, uh, offered the opportunity for the next most qualified women in their age groups in the 70.3 distance to come and race on behalf of Women for Try. So in 2017 in Chattanooga, we had 200 women. In Nelson Mandela Bay in South Africa uh, in 2018, we had 300 women. Last year in Nice, we had 500 women. And this year in New Zealand, we will have 1,000 women racing in support of Women for Try in this amazing program that's done things like, you know, just next week, the first two women from Afghanistan are going to cross their first Ironman finish line. And, you know, really incredible programs and projects. And um, very excited to, to see that 
program uh, become what it is. People can go to womenfortry.com, of course, also join the Facebook group to learn more. The way that you get to the Ironman 70.3 World Championship is to race at one of these 40 races worldwide that have an extra 25 female slots. And if you stay for the roll down ceremony at the end, the slot could roll down to you, and then that's how you would get a slot to uh, to come and race with us in New Zealand. Yeah, so I know in uh, in the UK last year we had extra slots uh, in Staffordshire, I think, and Weymouth, and in Dunleary. But in 2020, we actually have, um, I think we have slots in Staffordshire, and of course we have the 25 additional slots for Kona because Women for Try are coming en masse to Ireland, which is a huge honour for the Irish race. And for me as a global ambassador, it's absolutely fantastic. So um, I would love to see more women racing in, uh, in in general, but obviously in Ireland because I'm from Cork, the race is in Cork. But there's such a great sense of accomplishment between the female athletes um, and ac- across the men as well. But I think there's something very special about seeing a female cross the finish line of a race where maybe they might have thought maybe five, six years ago, triathlon wasn't an option for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, babies, life, work, everything, the barriers that were put in their way that are just natural parts of life were maybe helped to be moved to the side a little bit. And the triathlon clubs make such a big deal of trying to encourage more people to take up the sport because we want to make more people aware of the sport of triathlon, but also to get out of it what you and I both get out of it. And you mentioned Christmas Day. I never thought of triathlon like being like waking up on Christmas Day and going down to open your day of presence Mm -hmm. and your day of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it it's, really is it's that. fantastic. It's such a special sport in so, so many ways. And I want to say thank you for your leadership, you know, and all you've done for Women for Try. Oh, you're very it kind. It makes a huge <laughs> difference. And I wish, I know you're trying to get me to come to Cork, but uh, I, I don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't know if I can. But I would love, I'll be there in spirit no matter what. I did want to um, just say a couple of words about some of the other special programs that we have going on at the Ironman Foundation, and some of them are rather new, so folks may not know about them. Uh, one's called the Gold Star Initiative that was uh, created by a gentleman named Mike Ergo, a Marine Corps veteran who in the Second Battle of Fallujah lost a huge number of, of his uh, brothers, and uh, he was featured in the 2017 Ironman World Championship NBC documentary, um, so people may be familiar with his story. And he, along with uh, Lisa Anderson, who's a Gold Star mom, she lost her son Nick in military combat. They are Ironman Foundation ambassadors, and they run this program where athletes can carry the American flag during the run portion of the event and present it to a local Gold Star family, one who's lost a loved one in military service. And it's been just a breathtaking project to be a part of and and program and those families then receive support to join Wear Blue Run to Remember which is another nonprofit that serves military families and the whole idea is that they process their grief and heal through running and physical activity so um, that program is outlined and applications are open now on uh, ironmanfoundation.org our website also Bike for a Kid is what we call a pop-up service project in Ironman Village the race expo takes five minutes to build a bike for a local at-risk kid you finish it off with a note to the kid who's going to receive it and you know we do think that bikes change lives we've seen it I know (laughs) changed my life for sure Um, and I love that program Um, in partnership with Flow Cycling we're able to give about 700 bikes to kids this year Um, And the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, a program called Iron Aid. 
And that program was established by athletes who are in the healthcare industry. They're doctors, surgeons, nurses, etc., And they are racing Ironman events uh, routinely. And they raise funds specifically for our health-related grants in our Ironman race communities. Um, there is a slot available to go to Kona for the top fundraiser in that program. And Iron Aid is, again, one of the programs um, that you can learn more about at ironmanfoundation.org. So how many people in general uh, would get involved with the work of the Ironman Foundation over the course of a, a race season or the course of 12 months? So it's about 2,500 athletes every year who are raising funds or donating to the Ironman Foundation Community Fund in order to participate in their races. Um, we have typically around 1,800 people who volunteer for our service projects. Every year we have more projects, and so we anticipate it'll be over 2,000 people this year who are helping to give back to our race communities. And you don't have to be racing with the Ironman Foundation or on the Team IMF, which is our peer-to-peer fundraising program. Anybody can come, uh, even if you're not racing. If you're you know, supporting your athlete and want to volunteer, um, almost all of our service projects are family-friendly, so it's really neat to see kids come too. And the other thing as well is that you're getting leadership from the professional athletes as well and people who are key movers and shakers in the business of triathlon, they support the Ironman Foundation. So they're also giving back to the sport of triathlon through the Ironman Foundation. True. Our good friend Mike Riley serves as the team captain for the Ironman Foundation ambassador team. Uh, this is his fourth season. He's joined by six pro triathletes, uh, Paula Newby-Fraser, the Queen of Kona, Marinda Rini Carfrey, her husband Timothy O'Donnell, Ben Hoffman, Sarah True, Matt Russell, uh, all those pros, you know, carving out time in their busy lives and schedules to give back and race for more, which is what we, one of our mantras at, at the Ironman Foundation. Uh, they're joined with, uh, by just over 20 age group ambassadors, and we're actually getting ready to announce those athletes uh, within the next week or so. As a team, they are supporting our service projects, they are supporting our Team IMF athletes, um, and really representing our uh, commitment to service through sport and commitment to community. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Sarah, is the TBI Women's Mentorship Programme, which was launched here today, and I've made it into the class of 2020, yes, so I'm very excited. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, but it's a, it's not just about encouraging um, more females to race in triathlon, because we need to get more women visible in the sport of triathlon as leaders, as role models, as business people, entrepreneurs, whether you're a coach, whether you're a brand, whatever it is. So the TBI uh, Women's Mentorship Programme will be hugely beneficial for those people who maybe are doing triathlon and it's a passion project for them as the moment as an athlete, but maybe there's an opportunity for them to turn it into a business. So will you just explain for us a little bit more about the, the programme and where it's come from and where you see it going? Sure. So uh, I went to the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit uh, in its inaugural year uh, last year. I went this year as well, but Coming out of the first year, I was inspired to create a program that would encourage more female leadership in the sport. And so I reached out to several women um, who were at Outspoken and who I've been friends with for some time, like, you know, Vic Brumfield from USAT and Kay Martin from Boko Gear and head uh, Stacey Perlis from Wahoo and Tina Wilmot, Karen Singh, uh, now Megan Rich is, is part of the 
the advisory committee. And so we formed this program where on an annual basis in November, in conjunction with the Outspoken Summit, we open up applications for women all over the world to apply to be mentors or mentees. Our website is tbiwomen.com, where you can learn all about the program and the parameters and requirements and that sort of thing. Applications close at the beginning of January, and we engage in this pairing process that's um, really exciting. It was it was very um, it was challenging in a way, but it was also very inspiring to read women's stories and what they're looking to accomplish and also how they wish to serve as mentors. And we announced the first class of the mentorship program just today here at Endurance Exchange, which will be our custom. So uh, it's a six-month one-to-one mentorship program free to participate. Our pairs are given a toolkit and all kinds of support uh, on their six-month program, so February to July. And and we'll regroup uh, after they've completed in July and we've received their feedback and tweak the program so that we can open applications for the second class. And um, I will say, you know, working at Ironman, it's an incredible, it's an incredible opportunity to be in a place like Ironman where so many women are in leadership positions. I don't know that people realize that. And to be one of them is um, extremely exciting. And I just hope the same for, you know, other women who are up and coming in the business or are perhaps in one sector, you know, me, myself, I was in technology and ended up in sport. And so um, that only came with the generosity of my mentors and time to pay it forward. And I think as well, you know, we have a campaign in Ireland called uh, the 20 by 20 campaign, but the hashtag is can't see, can't be. And by having female leaders like the likes of yourself sitting in such a high profile role as the executive director of the Ironman Foundation gives the rest of us uh, somebody to look up to and to aspire to be in a position at that level within such a huge global organisation. So even the likes of Annie Head and Kay from Boku and, and Tina and a few others that were here, it was really lovely to just meet those women who have, have been trailblazers, including yourself, within the industry. I know a lot of it is, is US-based, but your names are synonymous with the sport of triathlon and with Ironman. The more that you do and the more that the Ironman Foundation grows and the brand grows, the more that your name and your, um, I suppose, opportunity to be our leaders grows as well. So thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me on the show today and for getting me to come to Endurance Exchange because it has been absolutely fantastic. And I really want you to come to Ireland. (laughs) I just may do that. Thank you so much for uh, having me here today and for your friendship and your leadership. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah Hartman, the Executive Director of the Ironman Foundation. So you'll be hearing in just a few minutes about one of the athletes who uh, benefited from the Women for Try programme. Her name is Trini Willerton. She has an incredible story to tell and she is going to take on the world and make the roads across the world a much safer place for us. of our listeners that is based in the United States you may have heard of this fabulous lady who is championing hashtag it could be me Trini Willerton you're very welcome to the show thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me um, because you're a very special lady and uh, we want to find out more about you and about your campaign to make roads safer for everybody not just in the United States but across the world 
Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, well, I've been a triathlete since 2010. I got a little bit more competitive when I moved to Colorado. I started seeing results that I had never seen before. I guess training at altitude really did it for me. And so um, in 2017, I was training so I could qualify for Kona, you know, all of our dream. And I was on the Ironman Boulder course when I got hit. I was T-boned by a truck or by a driver with his truck. He sent me to the hospital. I was there for six days. I recovered triumphantly because um, all of my doctors agreed it was because I was so fit. And so that's something that I really, really want to motivate people to not be scared and, and to continue to ride outdoors. I know it's, it's challenging sometimes, but I'm trying to change that with the help of everybody that is getting involved. So Trini, tell me about the extent of those injuries because they were quite um, extensive. Yes, so I had 12 fractured, uh, 12 fractures all over my body. I had six broken ribs. I had a triple pelvic fracture. I had a fractured scapula. My coccyx was fractured. I had um, a ruptured implant, which was terrible. And I had to do surgery on that. All of my fractures, unbelievably, were non-displaced. So I just, I couldn't cast anything. I just had to wait and be very patient. I had a punctured lung. So that, So how long was the recovery from all of that? Um, Physically and then of course, mentally and emotionally on top of all of that as well. Well, I went to therapy for a year for PTSD and that was uh, unbelievable. And it really was life-changing. I think it helped, it was very therapeutic in many levels, but the actual recovery, I was doing Ironman Kona October 12th, so my accident was May 8th, 2018. And I so you managed to make it to the start line of Kona? Yeah. I what was that feeling like? It was, um, it was the most unbelievable day. Every single moment, I smet, I, there was a huge smile on my face and there was nothing but gratitude. It was just incredible. So how do you go from being laid up in hospital a few months uh, with quite extensive uh, injuries to ending up on the start line of the Ironman World Championships? So I, a friend of mine convinced me to apply for the women for tri slot before the accident. The application came out on May 1st and she worked with me. She's a writer and she thought that I was inspirational. I really didn't believe I was inspirational enough, but she she thought I was. And so she worked really hard. On May 8th, I got hit. The application was due May 10th. So she called the hospital to check in on me. And from my hospital bed where I could not move, literally get off the bed, I told her, you know what, Dana, you worked so hard on this. Please, please submit the application. And she's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And little did I know, but um, a couple of weeks later, she submitted the application and then they were start, they contacted my husband and they were checking in to see if I was physically going to be able to, to do the race. They didn't want to say anything to me because, you know, obvious reasons. But it wasn't until about three months into this whole ordeal that my doctors gave my husband the green light and then he shared the news with Ironman. And so how, how did you go about your training then? How did you go about getting, um, I suppose, fit for life, never mind yeah. fit to race? Yeah. Well, I had a great team. <laughs> I can never be more thankful to all the people that gathered and really pushed through everything that came up. There was always something new. And, and I always focused on what I could do opposed to what I couldn't do. So 
I mean, it was just little things. And there was a time when I started to panic because I hadn't run or walked or anything combined for more than six miles. So I, I was, but there, there was never an alternative not to do it. I had already started fundraising. I ended up fundraising $32,000 for Women for Try. So I had this huge commitment in so many levels. And so to me, I just had to find a way. And I started, you know, talking about perhaps, you know, with a wheelchair. And it wasn't until one day I was able to do a run that was 20 miles. It was run, walk, run, walk. And I did it in a timely fashion. And I was like, okay, I'll be okay. It'll be fine. Um, another coach that stepped up was Eni Jones, who's this fabulous woman who, as soon as she heard I was going to do Kona, she contacted me and she was with me in the pool three times a week. She has very um, un un orthodox. unorthodox methods. Thank you. So I was <laughs> swimming with rocks. I was swimming with all these different methods, just trying to activate my body in a different way and I had to relearn how to swim and I had I think my time for this one was a 119 so to me I was like whoa really <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> so what was it like coming down the finish line of the world championships it was um it was just unbelievable I mean just getting there it was just knowing that you know once you set your mind to something there's nothing that will stop you and I I I proved that to myself. I was just so grateful with life and knowing that everything was going to be okay. No matter what life threw at me at that point moving forward. I had no idea that I was going to come up on it could be me. I knew that I wanted to change things, but I just didn't know how it was going to happen. Were you nervous getting back on your bike and getting back out training? Oh, absolutely. But like I said, if anybody has any hesitation about anything, it doesn't have to be that you went through a crash. Just if you are weary about the water, I've heard a lot of people have a lot of anxiety with water. Working with a therapist was really incredible. She is actually Sam Long's mother. So she has a son who's a professional triathlete for a son and she totally gets it. She has, she worked with brain, brain spotting as her method. And so you listen to music and it targets your amygdala and it kind of releases trauma. And that was really, a deal maker for me. I was I wouldn't be able to have done anything without her help, really. So now you are turning your passion for life really into a passion project called hashtag it could be me, which is a massive uh, movement here in the States and getting bigger and is going worldwide. So tell us a little bit more about hashtag it could be me and how we can get involved and support this. Well, I started researching the problem or the narrative between motorists and cyclists, and I discovered there are so many issues. But one of those issues has to do with how motorists perceive cyclists. We're not viewed as human anymore. And there's many studies out there that prove this. So I was like, well, you know, it, I get it, but I don't. I mean, we're all just people. We're trying to get from point A to point B safely. We all have tons of people that love us and just need us to come home safely. So I decided to to make a video and share it with the world. Within the first week, I had 24,000 views on Facebook and I just have never looked back since then. So I'm asking people to do the same thing I did. I'm just asking people to share something that makes you you. It could be that you're a mom. It could be anything. Um, then ask people to look out for you on the roads and one thing that's really important to me is for 
whoever makes a video to to say that they're going to follow the rules of the road. I think that's really important and people respect us for that. So I'll follow the rules of the road. I am a mom and I'm a cyclist. I love to be outdoors. So please look out for me when you're driving because it could be me. And then one other crucial thing, because right now the easiest way to get to motorists is through the people that already love us. So I ask people to share that video on their network and hopefully reach the uncle that never really thought twice when they saw a cyclist on the road. And now maybe they're thinking, oh, it could be my niece. But it's not just about the selfie and about sharing the hashtag. It could be me because you're making change at a policy level. Um, you're making change at a government level. You're lobbying, you're advocating for people. So tell us a little bit more about that. So I see this movement as a threefold and what well, one has to do with the, with the videos. The other part has to do with policy change. I think it's crucial. I think across the country um, and across the world, I, I, I wish there was something that we could do to unify the, the penalties. So after Kona, I was very fortunate to have been able to be a witness for a bill that now is the law in Colorado. I learned a lot through that process. I learned that there's many things we can change as just people and as long as we unite our voices and as long as we seek out those people that are already working in our communities. So in within my website, you'll find a list of all the nonprofits. There's a nonprofit for each state in the country. And they're just looking for people like you and me. And you can volunteer at any level. It could be just, you know, handing out flyers or posting on your social media or attending bike rides. or. And so I decided also to um, create a, an ambassador program. So we have a local leaders program. And I aim to connect all of those people that are passionate about this with each other so we can create change. On a personal level, I am trying to draft a document that I'm planning to take to Washington in March um, that will hopefully break all of these barriers between states and will be one law, a federal law, that will have a consequence for everybody regarding vulnerable users of the road. Right now, it's so unjust, I think, at least there, there are several things that I have to go because the verbiage has to be just right. Um, what I learned with Bill 175 was it, it had to be amended so many different times and for so many different people that currently I will have a draft very soon, but I, I am working with people that have that expertise so we can come together with the best um, set of ideas and hopefully it will move forward. We can't look away anymore. People are getting killed. Effectively, your vehicle is a weapon. And I think we need to adopt a different mentality towards driving and, and appreciate what a privilege it is. And how vulnerable we are as users of the road when you're on a bicycle. So if people want to find out more about the campaign or they want to get involved or they want to do a video for you, where do they go to find out more and where can they follow you on social media? I'm all over the place. We have a website and it's www.itcouldbeme.org. And we have an Instagram, it's it could be me 2020. Um, Facebook, it could be me. <laughs> Twitter, it could be me. Um, so yeah, so please follow us, be supportive, get out there and just make your voice heard. Your, our voices are so powerful and and we can make a change and we will make a change. And before we finish up, tell me what are your racing plans for 2020? 
So, um, I still have like my injuries flare up and sometimes I think I'll be able to race and sometimes I don't, but I keep, you know, I keep at it and I'm very tenacious. So I did sign up for Galveston 70.3 and last year I qualified for Taupo. So I'm going to be in Taupo 2020. Yeah. Fabulous. You're not tempted to come to Ireland, the Ironman, uh, Ireland in Cork with the additional <laughs> women for try slots on the 21st of June. That would be amazing. And, you know, I'm going to be in Europe, so we might, maybe, I mean, I'd have to really get on my training. I have not trained enough, but um, it's a possibility. We are, my, my husband's English and we are going to visit his family this summer, so. So maybe you could take the, the flight across to Cork, direct flights from London. Uh, well, Trini Wilton, thank you so much um, for joining me here and taking time out uh, from the busy schedule here at Endurance Exchange. And uh, if you do want to get involved in the campaign, just look up the hashtag. It could be me across Instagram, Twitter, and you'll find them on Facebook and indeed on the website. And if you do want to do a selfie video, uh, be sure to share it with them. Uh, thanks, Trini, and safe traveling home to, uh, to Denver. Thanks so much. Thanks as always for tuning in from across the globe and hello to all our new listeners. Glad you could join us. If you are enjoying the show, please, please, please pop a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Facebook page, Try Talking Sport. I love hearing your feedback on the interviews. If you have a suggestion for a guest, why not pop an email to trytalkingsport at gmail.com. That's try with an I, not a Y. I'll try and bring home some of this Arizona sunshine to Ireland this evening. But in the meantime, stay safe and happy training. <laughs>